everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much for joining. We have such an important show for you today. And guess what we're not going to spend the entire show talking about? Donald J. Trump's arrest. Because honestly, it's not that big of a deal. We'll talk about it in another show. We may even get into later on the show why he shouldn't have been the first former president to ever be indicted. How pathetic it is that people chose to indict someone over whatever he did, as opposed to, let's say, the Iran-Contra scandal or, let's say, the Iraq war. But what we're going to be talking about are things that are very important and that the mainstream media is not focusing on, even though they should be. So that's what you're here for. I know that's why you're here, not to just talk about Trump's arrest. So we have a great show for you today. We are going to be bringing on not one guest, not two guests, but three great guests to talk about really important issues that are being overlooked by the media. And before I bring on our guests, let me just say, please do a couple of things. One is hit the like button, share this and subscribe. To subscribe, you just hit subscribe and then you hit the bell. If you can, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show for just $1 a month. That's $12 a year. You get to uh, make this show possible. We really literally couldn't do the show without your support. You could also become Patreon supporters at the $5 a month level. And that gives you access to extended interviews and exclusive content In fact, in today's show, we're going to have a which uh, presidents should have been indicted first segment with Aaron Good, and that's going to be our Patreon-only segment. So if you're watching live, you get to watch it. If you are watching this later and you want to see that, and he's, of course, the amazing historian, political scientist, and host of American Exception, the podcast and author of the book, American Exception, you can find that chat at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So I'm very excited, extremely excited about our show today really important things that we're talking about. And we're basically focusing on East Palestine because while the entire media is talking about Trump, the media is not talking about East Palestine. They're also not talking about the fact that something like 15 million people could lose their Medicaid very shortly. Again, that's not newsworthy for some reason. During the second half, we're going to be talking to Louis DeAngelis, who is an excellent reporter at Status Quo, who's been on the front lines on the ground in East Palestine doing the thankless work of actually reporting from there. That's going to be a great conversation. He's going to talk about some major news that not only is that whole area of the world not being focused on, but there's some really important stories within that story. But before that, we're talking to two wonderful guests, Dr. Anna Malinow, who has spent three decades working as a pediatrician with immigrant, refugee, and underserved children in Ohio, Texas, Pennsylvania, and California. She's past president of Physicians for a National Health Program co-founder of Healthcare for All Texas, and a lead organizer for the National Single Payer and the Movement to End Privatization of Medicare. She has altered opinion pieces on how National Single Payer will improve patient care and bring us closer to social justice. She has been a speaker on healthcare reform and the privatization of Medicare and featured on national and international television and radio. She recently retired as professor of pediatrics from the University of California in San Francisco. And we're also bringing on to talk with Anna, with us, Kay Tillow, who was born in Paducah, Kentucky, she worked in the Southern Civil Rights Movement. She's worked for healthcare and nurses unions on organizing and collective bargaining, and is currently chair of Kentuckians for single-payer healthcare and coordinator of the All-Unions Committee for Single-Payer Healthcare. So welcome to the show, Anna and Kay. Great to be here, Katie. Yes, we're really excited to have you. And we, of course, we started talking with you the other day, and there was some weather issues. So people were very upset that they lost the interview, but as promised, you're back. So, so excited to have both of you on. I wanted to ask you, first of all, you guys are focused on, you have two focuses. One focus is on Medicare for all as a right, uh, but you're also focusing on how people in East Palestine can have access to Medicare. And you have a certain historical precedent that you're basing this around. So can you first start with that precedent? Uh, Yes. (laughs) 
Um, the precedent is Libby, Montana, which, uh, like East Palestine, was subjected to a, a poisoning by a vermiculite mine where the vermiculite was mixed with asbestos. And the company, which was W.R. Grace, did not tell the workers or the town. And uh, throughout many years, the miners brought the uh, waste home on their clothes and their shoes. And indeed, uh, the waste from the mines was also used to mix into gardens. It was even spread on the running track at the local high school. And uh, people began to get sick and too many died. And it was only through the work of some of the heroic townspeople that began to discover what was the source of this terrible tragedy because uh, the asbestos causes mesothelioma. It causes a whole number of conditions which are really deadly for people. And uh, when they began to expose it, then, of course, uh, over some period of time, W.R. Grace, the company responsible, declared bankruptcy, leaving the townspeople without the jobs, without health care coverage, and uh, sick and dying in that situation. So it was for many years they had nothing. But in 2010, a uh, senator named Max Baucus from Montana who was head of the Senate Finance Committee and therefore in position to write the health care reform bill, which became known as the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And while he uh, allowed the insurance industry to basically write the bill, providing for their key role within it and many subsidies that went to it, he did one tiny thing for the people of Libby, Montana that were suffering, and that is that he put them into Medicare so that anyone within that area around Libby who is diagnosed with one of those conditions, regardless of age, regardless of anything, regardless of having paid in or not, they become eligible for Medicare, the one publicly funded healthcare plan in our country that would better serve all of us. And Balkus did it at the time that he absolutely, he had arrested the single payer supporters who sought to speak at a Senate hearing. So he totally blocked the single payer improved Medicare for all solution from the nation, as he knew that for people who were really sick and really in trouble and needed something better, he put them in the public plan in Medicare. And that was stuck into the bill, and hardly anyone knew. There was no news on it. A tiny line in the New York Times, and there was no news, so people didn't know. But as soon as it happened, uh, the Social Security people went down to Libby and Whitefish and Kalispell and began signing people up. And there's a whole section of the Social Security Act called uh, 1881A that now covers the people of that Libby area. And um, the connection to East Palestine is that that section also says that it that the Libby people are covered because they're covered by a public health emergency order of 2009. And it says that if, if there is another order of that nature, it could in the future be used for another area. Hence the tie to East Palestine. Are they not also in a public health emergency where the vinyl chloride and all of the things that came from that train crash uh, are uh, causes of brain and liver and lung cancer and even lymphoma and leukemia. And therefore, they are faced with 
a future as dim as uh, Libby was faced with. And uh, the connection is, uh, uh, it's interesting <laughs> that uh, these crises are the only times that we begin to even look at a healthcare system that would actually function to solve the nation's problems. And they're, they're not, I don't want to say they're band-aid solutions. They're so, they're necessary, but so woefully insufficient, but they would make a big difference. But of course, an actual system that existed for all. Right. Well, Medicare, you know, is, it, it falls short because there are too many costs in addition to it. And even the people of Libby have to buy either Medigap, you know, or pay additional money, et cetera. But it's kind of, it's the form, you know, an inclusive form that's publicly funded, that is open to all. That's the concept that the country needs. And of course, that's the, that is the Medicare plan. As, as short as it falls, it is an improved Medicare for all that we need to solve the nation's problems. And we should have had it during the pandemic when all of us were in a, a healthcare emergency. And, you know, someone should have said 1881A means that the nation is now covered by Medicare for all. And Kay, what was your role in this fight? And then I'm going to ask you, Anne, about your role in the fight. In the, the single payer fight? Yeah, and, and Libby and... Oh, uh, well, I was active... Uh, in, since 2003, when the single-payer bill was introduced by Congressman John Conyers, and I was working on getting unions to endorse it, and we worked to get um, 600 unions and, you know, 44 state AFL-CIO councils, et cetera, to endorse that bill back then. And uh, we fought to try to get single payer onto the nation's agenda. And of course, it was closed down uh, by Max Baucus, by Obama, by <laughs> all of those, by uh, Liz Fowler, who uh, was the insurance person who wrote the bill, served with Max Baucus. She's currently head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid innovation and uh, doing the programs that are privatizing Medicare. Um, but, but so my role was just, I was just one of the many activists who were trying to get the uh, discussion going about the kind of plan that would really, really solve the nation's problems. And instead, we got a plan that while it helped a few, it really put the insurance industry in control of so much. And Anna, what about you? What was your role in this fight? Well, pretty much since the same time that Kay started, sometime in the early 2000s, um, I became with an, uh, became involved with an organization called uh, National um, Physicians for a National Health Program. And uh, we advocated- had Adam Gaffney on the show. Oh, great, great. He was past president <laughs> um, after me, actually. Um, so we, we've been advocating for a national health program, a single-payer national health program, uh, which sort of the shorthand for it is improved uh, Medicare for all. But as Kay pointed out, there are many gaps in, in today's current Medicare, and seniors um, have to pay a lot of out-of-pocket costs. As we know, um, that uh, it's been privatized. 50% of it has already been privatized, and, and so the Medicare Advantage uh, plans are siphoning billions and billions of money fraudulently from that program. And now the other half of Medicare called traditional Medicare is under threat of being privatized as well from private equity firms and venture capital firms. So uh, we still have a lot of work, a lot of work to do. And what are you hoping to do now? Are you hoping to take advantage of this tragedy in East Palestine? What are you guys focusing on right now? Well, so, you know, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say that we're praying for uh, an environmental health disaster in order to be able to get Medicare for all, right? That, that's really not what we should be praying for. We should have uh, a national single-payer improved Medicare for all um, as, as a human right. And so, um, so th there are a few things that, that, that are happening. Um, in 2021, uh, Congresswoman Jam uh, Pramila Jayapal 
from Washington introduced the Medicare for All Act of 2021, and it was based on the bill that Kay was talking about, the John Conyers bill, um, which he introduced in 2003. And we consider this the the model bill. And um, uh, Jai Paul's bill it was introduced in 2021, and she is due to reintroduce it or to introduce it in for 2023, probably in the next few weeks or so. And while it is a, a really good bill, it's actually a great bill. It, it covers, you know, it's universal health care for everybody. Uh, it, it's comprehensive care for all medically necessary care. It covers hearing, vision, dental, mental health, substance abuse, inpatient, outpatient care, prescription drug costs, medical equipment. Uh, importantly, it guarantees a woman's right to reproductive rights, including uh, abortion. And um, it will eliminate health insurance companies. It will eliminate Medicare Advantage and Medicaid, uh, the exchange, the exchanges, and most importantly, it will eliminate eliminate the possibility of ever being uninsured. But there are some some uh, things that really do need to be improved in that bill before it gets introduced. And um, if that's okay, I'll just go ahead and, and talk about the the, the four points that, um, in fact, um, National Single Payer, which is an organization that Kay and I belong to published an open letter to the co-sponsors of H.R. 1976, which is Jai Paul's bill. Um, first of all, thanking them uh, for being co-sponsors and then um, asking Jai Paul to improve the bill before it gets introduced. And it's an open letter that was published in Common Dreams and on March 7th. So if people want to look it up or they can go to our website as well and they can see the, the they can read the open letter there. But importantly, there are four things that really need to be improved. One is the conversion of for-profit hospitals to not-for-profit status. Um, amazingly, much of our healthcare system is already owned by, by corporations. In fact, um, more than 90% of skilled nursing facilities, of nursing homes, and of dialysis centers are owned by private corporations, and 10% of all hospitals are privately owned. And so... What we need to do is it would be insane, really, for us to have a national single-payer program where we take public funds and pay uh, corporations and pay private equity firms, right, uh, to take care of, of our medical needs. So those um, those corporations, those for-profit uh, institutions and facilities need to be banned, but they need to be converted, right, uh, into, uh, into not-for-profit status. And the reason for that is because when you think about it, our dialysis centers, more than 95% of them are owned by two corporations in the United States. That's Davida and Fresenius. And we couldn't possibly shutter all of our dialysis centers and then say, okay, well, you know, tomorrow we're going to have Medicare for all because, you know, people on dialysis can't wait a week. They can't wait a day uh, for their next dialysis. And so we need to be able to conserve these facilities, but just convert them into not-for-profit status. So that's number one. And number two is um, we need to have a, a just transition for displaced workers because the truth is, is that workers, some people are going to be losing their jobs as a result of the fact that we're going to have Medicare for all. We'll have health insurance, but <laughs> they will be out of a job. So it's important to protect them. And um, the Conyers bill had really strong protections for these displaced workers. Now, we figured that about 1.7 million people are going to be losing their jobs as a result of Medicare for all. And just to put it into perspective or into context, about 60 million people change their jobs in the United States every year, 20 million of which are fired from their jobs. And that comes out to about 1.7 million per month that are either changing or losing their jobs. And so, you know, 1.7 million in the context of, of, you know, all the people that are losing their jobs is not very much, but it's really important for us to have worker protected, workers protected um, if they lose their job as a result of this. And so the Conyers bill had um, really strong protections. They ha it had uh, two years of salary parity up to, uh, to $100,000 per year. And it also had first priority in job placement and training. And the Jayapal bill is very murky on this. It's very nebulous. And it needs to be, the, the language needs to be really strengthened. Um, in addition, it's really important for us you know, when we're talking with workers um, about Medicare for all, that if they're going to be losing their job as a result of what we're trying to to push, that that they feel, you know, that they're going to be protected in some way. The third thing is that we need to have progressive funding for this act. Um, the, the Conyers bill talked about progressive funding where people of lower income would pay lower fees 
um, lower um, amounts from, from their salaries. Um, and it's important that corporations and billionaires start paying their fair share because up until now they haven't been. And so it's really important that they do that. And, um, and the Jayapal bill doesn't really talk about uh, funding at all. So it's, it's important to include that language in the bill. And then finally, the fourth point is that we need to have a one-year transition into Medicare for All. The Jayapal bill talks about a two-year transition with a very, very complicated Medicare buy-in and then a stage group inclusion, which will just kill solidarity for it. Uh, it will also uh, skyrocket costs in that first year, which will be just ammunition for our opponents to say, oh, you see, you know, single payer can't work because it's just too expensive. So so it's important for us to uh, to show the country that we can transition over a year. And in fact, in 1965, when Medicare was signed into law, Medicare signed up 20 million seniors in 10 months using index cards. So I think we can do this. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm positive that we could. Wow. Maybe that's the trick. Maybe we just need index cards again. Yeah. <laughs> None of this high tech right. stuff. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> So, okay, we hope you're watching Pramila Jayapal. Please listen to these women because they're actual experts in this field. And, and, you know, sometimes I just worry that the reason that they make it so complicated is because they don't want it to succeed. Right. Our healthcare system is, is very, very complicated and much more so than it, than it needs to be. But single payer is the simple plan. That's, that's really why it works. It simplifies uh, the payment and the administrative process, and it takes the profits out. That's the key. The profits are in there. They cause the care to cost too much and the people to not get the care they need. And I would love to know your stories from your lives. What made you interested in this issue? Why it's important to you and what you've seen as a doctor, Anna, and as an organizer, Kay? Kay, do you want to go first? Well, I I, uh, have worked, uh, worked in the Southern Civil Rights Movement I went to work within the union movement because I was convinced, like many of the people at the time, that the basic problems in our nation were economic ones and that we could not solve the justice problem without solving the economic problem. So I went to work uh, within the union movement and spent most of my life working with uh, healthcare workers' unions, 1199, et cetera. And that's where I came into <laughs> up uh, uh, in confrontation with the healthcare industry that was not allowing. That was basically the first thing I understood was the understaffing. When I was working with organizing nurses in Louisville at the time, Humana owned the hospitals. At the time, they <laughs> they did hospitals too, and they understaffed like crazy because they could make lots more money by doing that. So the nurses and other workers were driven to the to the point of insanity because they would try to stretch themselves because of the importance of their care and concern for the patients. So that battle over the staffing with uh, that profit-making healthcare company uh, just taught me a tremendous amount of uh, truth about what was happening within the country. Humana had little yellow stickers on everything that had to be charged. And so at the time, uh, the nurse had to get the yellow sticker onto the chart so the charge could be made. And that was more important than anything else. If you didn't get the medicine to the patient, it was okay. If you didn't get the bedpan there, if you left someone hanging, it was okay. But the yellow sticker, if the yellow sticker wasn't there for the payment, that was the crime of the century. And that's the way Humana ran the show, and I'm certain that they do now as they're getting into uh, controlling Medicare, profiting big time, and now they're also getting into this uh, this uh, direct contracting, this privatization of the traditional Medicare as well. Um, so um, my path was a little different. Um, I was a pediatrician in um, in the county hospital in um, Houston, Texas. It was uh, the largest county hospital there, and I was working in the emergency center there. And um, it struck me one day that I had no idea how a child ended up in uh, my exam room uh, on Medicaid. And I had you know gone to medical school for four years, done pediatric residency for three years, had been in 
uh, private practice for five years and then done academic medicine for many more years. And I knew nothing about our healthcare system. It's, it was really shocking to me how little I knew and how little I had been taught during medicine. It's almost like going to law school and never learning about the Constitution. So physicians go to medical school and never really learn about the healthcare system. And to this day, it still happens that way. Um, I, there are not very many schools that teach about single payer for sure. And so it struck me that, um, that I, I really didn't know anything about the healthcare system. And so I started to read about it. And the more I read, the more aghast I became. I said, oh my, this is our, our healthcare system. And working in Texas in an emergency center, I have to say that, you know, I was really in the, uh, the underbelly of the beast where 25% of the children there were uninsured. And uh, we had over 1 million people in Houston alone who had no health insurance. And um, it just struck me how I had become a very, very well-paid social worker because when I was seeing my patients, um, you know, I could make the best diagnosis, I could come up with the best treatment, but if that best treatment was something that they couldn't afford, it was like really not coming up with a treatment at all or a diagnosis at all. And so I spent most of my time trying to help children and their families find a way to pay for their health insurance. Um, or if a child was diagnosed with cancer, uh, if they didn't have health insurance, it, it was it was it, it was a fatal, really uh, fatal diagnosis. Um, so that's sort of where my activism started. Um, that was in early 2000. And, um, and so from there, we started this uh, organization called Healthcare for All Texas. And then um, I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where uh, amazingly, uh, children had health insurance, but there was so much poverty there that it, it almost didn't really matter. So a lot of determinants of, of health came into play. Um, previously, I had been in, in Cleveland and had taken care of very, 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 um, very poor um, uh, Caucasian and uh, white kids. And um, so uh, in Houston, I also had an opportunity to work with, with refugees. And uh, I was the one pediatrician and refugee clinic. And it, it just really, um, it, 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 it just pained me to see how little we valued children in this country. Um, and, you know, having a healthcare system like CHIP, which is the Children's Health Insurance Program, is just not enough because you not only have to take care of the children, but you have to take care of their parents and their aunts and uncles and grandparents and the person that drives them on the bus and, and everybody in the community. And that's really why uh, we, we need to have a healthcare system that covers everyone in, a, in, an, a, in an efficient, humane and compassionate, compassionate way. I think this would be a great moment to bring in our next guest because I think you guys all have really interesting things to share with each other. So we're going to bring on Louis DeAngelis, who is a reporter with Status Quo, and he's on the ground in East Palestine. So Louis, welcome. Thanks for having me, Katie. Uh, not, not on the ground at the moment right now, but I have spent two weeks over the last uh, month and a half on the ground. Yeah, there, you've been on the ground. Been yeah. on the ground. Been yes. on the ground. Yeah, 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 yeah. he's been. Yeah, not currently on the ground. Full disclosure. You see that kind of honest journalism there you don't you get yeah. everywhere. <laughs> Most people would just pretend they were there. Yeah. First of all, do you have any any responses to what our guests have been saying? And then we can jump into... No, absolutely. Uh, and, and thanks, Katie, for, for having me on and having this important discussion that you're having, too, with Anna and Kay on, you know, while so many people are all focused on Donald Trump today, uh, it's nice to see that you're focused on a lot of these issues that actually are potentially going to have an impact on helping real everyday Americans. Right. As opposed to whether or not he goes to jail, not going right. to be a game changer for anyone's health Agreed. And we're certainly not going to find out anything about that today. Um, so, so uh, yeah, I mean, I would love to see, uh, you know, some sort of federal intervention like you all are talking about in, in Libby, Montana. Um, I know a lot of residents in East Palestine who even as of two weeks ago when I was last on the ground and, and even today when, you know, I, I still talk to a lot of these residents every single day, uh, they're still experiencing some of these health impacts that, that you've heard about in the news, everything from, you know, uh, eyes burning from sore throats, from breathing difficulties, uh, to unfortunately, you know, we've, we've talked with folks who've had blood in their stool, who are coughing up all sorts of stuff, bloody noses on the regular, um, among people in many cases who are otherwise ordinarily healthy. So I know that a lot of these folks would love to see something 
come from the federal government here, similarly to what happened in Libya. But when I look at this and when a lot of the residents on the ground in East Palestine look at this and they see what the federal government is doing for them right now, they're not optimistic about that happening because unfortunately, the federal government, as far as actual assistance to residents who've needed any sort of help, whether it be financially or medical help, has essentially been zero. Um, you know, we've got some of these federal agencies on the ground, but to this day, anytime a resident of East Palestine, you know, needs more money to be staying in a hotel because a lot of these folks are still relocated two months later, um, they are consistently still needing to go to Norfolk Southern directly to ask for that money for their help. And in many cases, they're literally needing to beg Norfolk Southern for that money. Uh, one resident in particular that I have spoken quite a bit with, her name's Candice DeSanzo, uh, over three days, she spent 23 hours in the Norfolk Southern Assistance Center just to try to get some money to relocate her and her children, one of which, uh, one of her children ended up in the hospital lethargic, barely breathing, um, and the, the hospital needed to do a decontamination shower of her child uh, before they would see her or see him for, for medical care. So, you know, when we talk about federal aid coming in, that sounds great. But when we look at it realistically, I just really don't see it coming. I hope I hope that I'm wrong and that a situation like you all have talked about in Libby happens, but I, I don't I don't know where it's going to come from at this point. Hmm. Well, they haven't seen this stream yet, the government. Yeah. So once they see this panel discussion, maybe we can convince them. Yeah. Yeah. It could be a game changer. Yeah. Well, t tell us more about what you've observed and what people are experiencing in East Palestine. Absolutely. So uh, over the two trips I've spent there, I've seen the kind of full arc uh, of the story kind of begin. So the first time I was in town was a week with lots of, you know, uh, it was a big spectacle, essentially, the first week that I was there. Uh, the week that I was there was when former President Trump uh, was actually in town in East Palestine. Uh, it was also the first time that Aaron Brockovich was in town in East Palestine. The terrorist, which we'll get into later. <laughs> yes, the, yes, the terrorist, yes, which is outrageous that that accusation was made that the state of Ohio, for folks who maybe didn't see that, like literally have her labeled as like a potential terror threat in the state of Ohio for, for being an activist and, and for trying to get some actual help uh, to these people, um, which is outrageous, obviously. Um, but the, the first thing that I did when I got there was day one, morning one, went to this Norfolk Southern Assistance Center that I had heard so much about. Um, at the time, a lot of the news coverage was on these $1,000 checks that folks were supposedly getting for uh, their inconvenience. They're calling them inconvenience checks. Um, unfortunately, having this massive chemical explosion in your backyard is just a, a $1,000 inconvenience check. Here you go. Let's all hope everyone moves on with their day. Um, when we arrived there, I was absolutely shocked at what we found. Um, the assistance center didn't open until 10 a.m. Uh, we got there about 8 a.m. and there was a line of probably 60 or 70 people deep already. Um, the people in the front of the line had been there since about six o'clock in the morning. The reason that these folks were showing up as early as they were was because the day before and the day before that and the day before that, the railroad was essentially giving out a certain number of tickets per day, which would give you an appointment to meet with one of these Norfolk Southern workers who would talk to you about reimbursing you for your hotel stays that you had been paying for at this point for almost two weeks. So folks were waiting in line. And then after waiting hours, getting to the front and being told, sorry, come back tomorrow. So realistically, a lot of folks have jobs. They can't afford to wait in line all day for this assistance and then be told, you know, oh, sorry, come back tomorrow. So they're waking up, you know, first thing in the morning, going and getting in line. A lot of the folks were also being told that they're being denied for not having basic paperwork, th things that, that you wouldn't think would be needed for this, though, like a social security card, like, uh, you know, proof of residency for, for, you know, multiple forms of proof that you live there, social security cards or birth certificates for children. Um, they needed everything from you uh, to be able to prove it. You know, it didn't matter if your ID had your address on it, nothing like that. Uh, requiring lots of things ahead of time, but not making it very clear what you needed. So right off the bat, the assistance center uh, was all over the place, and that has continued all the way until this day. Um, the information is is very wishy-washy. I also very quickly encountered all sorts of the, the health concerns that we've discussed. I talked with dozens of residents who were getting uh, uh, diagnosed with uh, bronchitis due to chemical exposure, 
Um, I, we talked to residents 10 miles away who their doctors put chemical exposure as the cause of difficulties they were having. I spoke to a mother and her young son who both needed to go to the hospital to have nebulizer treatments and are still on rescue inhalers today. And they have never had issues like this in the past with the railroad tracks literally right in their backyard. So this was something that as you went further and further, it just continued to get worse and worse. And I'm somebody who I went into this whole thing with a little bit of skepticism as anybody does. I showed up and I was like, you know, I wonder if this is all being a little too hyped up or, you know, I wonder if as bad as they say, yeah, is it as bad as they say? Exactly. And person after person after person that I met was telling me all of these things. And then one gentleman saw us speaking uh, in front of the health clinic that the governor of Ohio had just told me earlier in the day that had just opened up. I ran into the governor of Ohio uh, after a resident had tipped me off saying, hey, the governor is on my street right now. Nobody's asking him any hard questions. Get over here. So I literally, my cameraman, John Farina and I turned the car around, (laughs) drove over. We only happened to be a couple blocks away. And I told him, I was like, look, I talked to the residents in this house, this house, this house, and this house on this street last night, the street that the governor was actually standing on, railroad tracks in these folks' backyards, and they're experiencing all of these health symptoms. What are you doing about it? And what what should they do? Where should they go? And the governor looks at me and he goes, well, we just opened this health center, blah, 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 blah. They'll be able to t- check them out. So as a journalist, I went to the health center to go see what was actually being offered at the health center. Come to find out the health center is offering uh, referrals to to doctors. They're offering somebody to talk to uh, and they're offering advice. Um, Notably, what they're not offering was any actual testing of urine or blood. They were not offering any prescriptions of any kind. They were not offering any treatments of any kind at all. Um, It was like that for weeks. I am hearing now that that tune has changed a little bit, but for the first several weeks of this, this clinic was not a clinic. It was maybe a resource center is a way to describe it, but not a clinic. Um, So that was the first part of the conversation with the governor there. The second part of the conversation was on testing. I I asked him about the testing going on, and frankly, he he lied directly to my face. Uh, He said that, you know, uh, Norfolk Southern was not the ones doing the testing initially, that the contractors hired by Norfolk Southern were not the ones that were doing testing that essentially gave the okay to allow residents back into town, tell these residents that everything is safe, when in fact that was the case. Uh, he told me he never you know, never had said these sorts of things. Um, we have the video on the Status Coup YouTube channel that folks can check out, but um, that was the beginning of where I was like, okay, there are a lot of lies being told. Um, if the governor is willing to live flat out, you know, with something that we can show video evidence of immediately afterwards. Um, Who else is lying here? What else is going on? What else is being hidden and covered up? So uh, unfortunately, that trend continued. We continued to see more folks who are sick. Um, As I started being led into many of these people's homes, you spend five, 10 minutes inside, and, and I could feel it myself. Your eyes start burning. Your throat starts to get a bit sore. Your neck starts to tighten up a little bit. Um, and it's, again, it's something that's hard to show on camera. You need to be there to be able to see it. Um, so on the ground, I mean, those are the things that are happening and unfortunately they're happening still as today, uh, and, and over the last couple of weeks and will continue to happen the next couple of weeks, the railroad, uh, is actually now digging up all of the contaminated soil that was initially buried underneath the tracks. So there is essentially a big open scar through the center of East Palestine, because these tracks run right down the middle, where all of this contaminated soil is being dug up. And all of the chemicals that were in there are now essentially being re-released again uh, into the air, into the waterways. Um, so the, a lot of these these effects are still continuing to this day. Wow. Yeah. Anne and Kay, do you have any questions or comments for Lewis? Well, um, I, I agree. Um that it, it seems unlikely that the people of East Palestine are going to get this Medicare for life as they did in Libya, Montana. Do you know if um, if East Palestine has been declared uh, an area um, for an emergency as an emergency declaration area? 
So the governor of Ohio has not declared a state of emergency uh, for the state of Ohio. Um, there is not, I believe you mentioned something earlier about like a, a medical uh, public health emergency order. Uh, that has not been t- declared in East Palestine to my, to my knowledge, um, which is, I mean, the fact that both of those things haven't been declared is outrageous. The governor could declare a state of emergency for Ohio to try to direct more resources here in a second. Um, he has declined to do so thus far. Um, it would be a good step to try to direct more resources from the state and federal government there. Um, but unfortunately, that declaration uh, has not been done at this point. Because because I believe that in order to be eligible for this 181A, you have to uh, you have to live in an area that has been declared an emergency declaration area. I don't know, Kay, you might know more about this than I do. Well, it hasn't happened. You know, the only emergency declared area that has gotten the Medicare is the area around Libby, and that dates back to a 2009 emergency order. But um, it seems to me that if the people of East Palestine know about this, it might give them another handle to begin raising cane about what is going on within their city. I saw the statement by uh, the Youngstown fire chief who, who uh, went to do the burn that uh, uh, was done with the chemicals later on. And he stated that, uh, you know, we nuked the town again with chemicals in order to reopen the railway so they could move the trains through again. So it is clear that that corporation uh, is doing what it needs to get its profits back on track and nothing for what gets people back on track. So perhaps, you know, the Libby uh, thing might be a handle uh, to help people to raise a storm about it because a storm has to be raised or else they'll just be forgotten. I, I agree with you, Ken. I want to say one thing here too, especially, you know, not, this isn't uh, Medicare, obviously, but uh, something that I'm working on right now, this is actually a little bit of a sneak preview. Uh, we have not published this at status quo yet, but I'm currently working on a story right now about uh, many residents right now, unfortunately, who were able to get assistance money from Norfolk Southern are potentially at risk now of losing their Medicaid and SNAP benefits Uh, because that money is potentially being counted as income, um, and it would thus put them above the threshold uh, for Medicaid or SNAP benefits. Again, still working through some of the details here, but in just some of the stuff that I found in the last 24 hours or so, residents were required to fill out W-9 forms with uh, Norfolk Southern, from what I can tell, um, which as somebody myself, I do a lot of independent contractor work. That's a form I'm used to filling out. Um, and need to pay taxes on that and on that. Um, and again, this money is being used for these folks to need to stay in hotels. So it's not like this money is is really even hitting their bank account for more than a second. It's not a job. It's exactly. It's not a job. And these people would much rather be staying in their houses, not in a hotel. Um, so that's something that we're still kind of working on the story. I've got several residents, though, who I've spoken with in the last 24 hours about this. Um, I've gotten some confirmation from uh, the Ohio department uh, that would be involved with, uh, you know, kind of giving out those sorts of benefits. Um, so stay tuned for that. I guess um, we'll we'll definitely be updating everybody on that on Status Q's YouTube channel and Substack. But um, even beyond that, though, uh, Kay, you mentioned the vent and burn. Um, the vent and burn, there was a lot of decisions involved there that I uncovered last week. Um, that the EPA actually admitted a couple a couple big things with this vent and burn. So initially, there was one car of vinyl chloride, um, the chemical, the main chemical in question here. There are a couple chemicals in question, but vinyl chloride is the big one. Um, the EPA had provided uh, guidance on what to do with this controlled burn, but they said that it wasn't their ultimate decision. Um, uh, so the EPA, what they had done was provided modeling for that one car to be vented and burned or to do a controlled burn, as some people may have heard. Um, And that modeling essentially showed where the chemical contaminants were going to spread to. Um, It very likely provided guidance as to what the evacuation area should be, all of this sort of stuff. So um, I've got a quote from EPA representative Mark Derno, uh, who was actually speaking at a town hall put on by an organization called River Valley Organizing last week. 
And I want to read it because it's important. Um, uh, it, it, quote, on Monday, we learned that they had made the decision to vent and burn five cars. We weren't part of that decision. So basically what was happening here is on Sunday, the plan was still, uh, to just to give the timeline for everybody, Friday, the derailment happens. On Sunday, the plan is the next day to do a one car of vinyl chloride vent and burn. Sunday night, when everybody left to the incident command area, that was the plan. Monday morning, they come in and the EPA sees that they, somebody, we don't know necessarily who they is, although my instincts and the instincts of some Pennsylvania officials that I've been speaking with uh, are saying that, that they, as Norfolk Southern, made the decision to vent and burn, and the EPA was not part of that decision to vent and burn five cars. So you go from one car to five. Obviously, that is a massive disparity. And if you only did the modeling for one, they had no clue the potential ramifications of venting and burning five of these cars. Wow. I wish it were surprising. It's disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I'd like to get back a little bit to what you said about um, Medicaid, which is just so incredibly outrageous that um, the money that they're getting from the railroad company is now going to be uh, counted as part of their income because, you know, we could do an entire show on, on Medicaid and, uh, and we know that it's a second tier system of healthcare for the poor. Um, and it's a means tested program, meaning that, um, you have to prove your poverty month after month after month, or depending on which state you live in, whether it's month to month or every six months or annually. And, um, you know, if, if you make $2 above that cutoff, then, then for that next month, you're not going to be getting your Medicaid. Um, you, you're not going to qualify for Medicaid. And then the next month, you know, your, your boss takes hours away and then yes, you can qualify for Medicaid and then your boss gives you more. And so it, it, it's this churning of, of people on Medicaid, which is, um, it's just so demeaning to have to keep proving your your poverty over and over again. And we know that um, as a result of the fact that we are now have ended the the pandemic, you know, Congress passed <laughs> the Reconciliation Act in 2020 in December of 2022 uh, with a specific date that the that the pandemic was going to end March 31st. How they came up with that date, I have no idea. But as a result of that, um, some of some of the the um, the the um, well, what they the, what they were calling the Medicaid continuous uh, enrollment pr- provision that was part of the initial um, Families First uh, COVID uh, Response Act that gave states uh, more matching funds in order to keep their enrollees or their beneficiaries on Medicaid for for continuously, meaning they didn't have to re-enroll month after month after month. And so they were on Medicaid. So people on Medicaid have been on Medicaid for three years, which has been, which has been great. Um, and as a result, you know, uh, amazingly during the pandemic, um, the uninsurance rate, the number of uninsured went down in 28 states as opposed to going up uh, because of the fact that people just weren't losing their Medicaid. They just stayed on their Medicaid and um, 20 million more people were eligible for Medicaid. But now we're learning that because the the um, the public health emergency is ending uh, or has ended, um, that states are now going to start to disenroll and uh, beneficiaries and up to about 15 million people are going to be losing their, their Medicaid uh, benefits um, as well as many other benefits as well um, as we were talking about earlier. And also, uh, yeah, it, it looks like... Um 15 million people are going to be potentially losing their could, let's say 15 million people could lose their coverage as a result of this, because the requirement that states keep people on Medicaid during the pandemic, that's come to an end. And, you know, it reminds me a bit, like you said, where did this date come from? You know, everyone laughed at Trump when he, he said it was going to be done by Easter. But what what's the data that Biden is basing this on? I mean, they don't even report a bunch of the numbers. Um, well, it's 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 very close to Easter, actually. He <laughs> <laughs> just had the year off. He was yeah. just wrong about the year. Yeah, was, right. yeah, right. off by a year. But although I think that they set a new, they set a definite date by which they were going to start kicking people off of Medicaid, 
regardless of whether the the end of the public health emergency was declared or not. So, and it really is going to be tragic. It's a quarter of a million people just in the little Kentucky who are going to lose their even. Uh- Looking at it specific to to East Palestine, too, I mean, I don't have the specific number of folks, but when you look at what the median income is in East Palestine, it's roughly, uh, as of 2020, roughly $28,000. The amount of single parents that I've talked to in East Palestine who are living on something like that with kids, um, you know, a a lot of folks that I talk to are are using SNAP benefits, are on Medicaid, um, and one woman that I spoke with this morning who lives in East Palestine told me she's like, at the time when I was getting this money from Norfolk Southern, you know, I'd seen that I had a W-9 form that I needed to fill out and I was weary about it then. Um, I was weary about it and, and they, you know, I was assured that it was going to be no, no problem, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, but I didn't have a choice. Like I, I needed to leave. Uh, th- th- this woman, her, her home is 20 feet away from Sulphur Run, which is the the small creek that basically goes right from ground zero of the derailment site and runs towards the Ohio River through a series of tributaries. And she lives right on it, like right next to it. Um, There were these aeration devices right next to her home, basically, you know, a couple, less than 100 feet away, spraying this contaminated water into the air, trying to separate the chemicals out of it. You may have seen some of these photos or clips of this on Twitter. And like her home, is was a hundred percent contaminated. I don't need an air detector in my hand to tell you that. I can tell you by just smelling what it was outside and inside. There was something not right with her home and many of these other folks. So, you know, these folks are unfortunately many of them living right at this income threshold where you may or may not qualify. They were already dealing with what you were talking about, Anna, of of being qualified and then being not qualified and making, you know, $200 more one month or something because they had a good month and then the next month they lose it again. And then in between that, you're dealing with like trying to get, go through the healthcare marketplace and all of this sort of stuff. I have some, I I'd spent, it's been a couple of years, but I was on Medicaid for a little bit and it was so stressful. It was so stressful. And I'm fortunate that I'm pretty healthy and I have some family that would help me if anything were to have happened. But a lot of these other folks do not have that. And they are living through this situation right now. That is by no fault of their own at all, exclusively the fault of Norfolk Southern, this railroad, and they are now having to deal with the consequences of this with, like I said, essentially zero help from the federal government so far. It's It I it drives me crazy every single day, and when I started digging into some of this today, um, I, I start to feel like a madman a little bit more every day, unfortunately. <laughs> well, and, you, and you have a story uh, at Status Coup where you're a reporter that East Palestine, the the EPA official, an EPA official admits that it may be missing toxic chemicals in air testing. Yes. Tell us about this kind of confession. Yeah. So this was at the same, the same town hall meeting that I mentioned the information from the vent and burn. Um, Again, too, this town hall meeting, it was fairly small, but you would think that other members of the media would be interested in it. You didn't even have to be there. There was a live stream. Like, so I listened to this and there were three big takeaways. Um, the vent and burn information that I just gave that the EPA had only provided modeling for one car, um, but in reality, they burned five. Um, the other big bombshell here is what you just mentioned with the air testing. So these residential air tests is something that I had been looking into for a while, actually. A lot of residents had been very skeptical of it. Um, basically, what was happening is uh, right after the vent and burn, when residents were returning home, uh, the railroad and the uh, EPA were doing, you know, some sort of like double testing, we'll call it, where they send a member of uh, the EPA or a contractor of the EPA, um, as well as a contractor hired by the railroad. The contractor in question here is a company called CTEH. They have a questionable track record at best of essentially going into disaster zones like this, um, oftentimes testing for things that they know they're not going to find to kind of move along and, and get this over with. Anyway, uh, both agencies essentially come in, um, and the main device that they're using is this handheld air tester uh, called a photoionization device. For short, it's a PID. Think a handheld, like little gadget that's got a little pipe on the end of it that you can kind of, you know, it sucks in some air and, and tests the air, um, and it gives you a result on a screen. 
So uh, again, residents have been very skeptical of this because in their homes, they were smelling the stuff. In their homes, I was smelling the stuff. They were getting sick when they were staying at home. Uh, these devices basically have brought back the same results in almost every single home in the whole town, whether you're right next to the derailment or a half a mile away. And that result is generally 0.1 parts per million or less than 0.1 parts per million uh, for uh, a broad test for what are called VOCs, volatile organic compounds. Um, so in this meeting, uh, the EPA, though, admitted that one of the chemicals in question here that's been found uh, in the heavily polluted creeks, and there was, it was on the train as well, um, there's a chemical called butyl acrylate. Um, so butyl acrylate, uh, according to, uh, well, I mean, several places, but, but Mark Derno, a representative from the EPA at this hearing, uh, said that the EPA's kind of action phase for butyl acrylate is 20 parts per billion, with a B, parts per billion. Um, and the device that they're using for testing, when you transfer it from parts per million to parts per billion, can only test as low as 100 parts per billion. So in other words, you would never find butyl acrylate at the action phase level with that device unless it was five times above the action level. Again, the action, action level being at 20 parts per billion but where the device can pick it up is at 100 parts per billion. Um, so that was a major admission from the EPA there. And then on top of that, in additional digging that I've done, I've spoke with folks on the record and off the record, folks who are you know, uh, chemistry PhDs, toxicologists, uh, folks who actually use these devices for work. Um, and uh, when I talk to the chemists in particular, they tell me that when vinyl chloride is set on fire, um, it turns into other things uh, through combustion, right? So the byproducts of burned vinyl chloride, uh, some of them are formaldehyde, phosgene, hydrogen chloride. Um, and with this device, the experts tell me that you would never be able to find phosgene with that device. You're just not going to get a reading for it no matter what. Um, with formaldehyde, uh, you can only get a reading with that device if you have it in a special setting and have a special attachment on the end of it. Um, I've seen dozens of these home test reports and I've seen none with a formaldehyde test result. Um, so that can pretty clearly tell us that they have not been testing for formaldehyde in these folks' homes. Um, and in both of the, the cases of formaldehyde and phosgene, if you can smell the chemical in the air, it is already above the limit of what you should be exposed to it when you look at recommendations from OSHA and other similar organizations. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and for some crazy reason, nobody is talking about this. Nobody, nobody. It's you, you guys and Lever News are like the only mm -hmm. places that regularly cover this. Um, and one other thing, um, Lewis, I want to ask you about, you have a, a video that, um, that we, uh, an interview, can you just set this up and then we'll show it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is an interview with a resident, uh, a portion of an interview with a resident in East Palestine. Her name is uh, Lonnie uh, Miller. Uh, Lonnie is a small business owner in the town of East Palestine, literally right on Main Street. You could throw a rock at the tracks from the front of her business, um, but you could also throw a rock at the tracks from her front yard because the tracks are essentially in her front yard. Um, in the full interview, she essentially recounts the entire night of the derailment and first three days. Um, it's during the interview. I mean, I, I was almost crying a couple of times. Lonnie was unfortunately in tears through a lot of it. And it's because it's such a tragic event. I mean, imagine being home, hearing this happen, seeing that the end of your street just looks like it's on fire and that your neighbor's homes look like they're on fire. Um, and so this is a, a portion of that interview where Lonnie also talks about uh, the unfortunate realities of the railroad industry as a whole and how unfortunately common derailments in general uh, really are. Sunday, when we left before the catastrophic failure and they said, you have to, you have to leave, um, my husband and I landed at the Ramada in Beaver Falls, PA. And that night when I went to take our dog out to the parking lot, she needed to use the restroom. I encountered three of the rail workers. Being naive, I actually stood there in the hallway of the hotel and I thanked the elderly worker, the older gentleman. I thanked him for coming to help our town. That's how naive I was. And he looked at me and he said, with a Southern accent, ma'am, this is my job. 
says, this is what we do. We're going to clean up this mess and we're going to move on to the next one. There'll be another one tomorrow. And he said it so nonchalantly and uncaring and like it didn't matter and that it's going to happen again. It absolutely terrified me. I went back to my hotel room and I sat on the floor and I cried. I just cried knowing that what we were experiencing, you know, the last two and a half days of my life, that it's going to happen to someone else. And it has to stop. Something has to give. It has to stop. And I'm coming forward today because I want it to stop. We can't, we can't keep living like this in our country, in the world. These are people's lives at stake, and we matter. Our families matter. And it just, it just breaks me. It just breaks me knowing that everything that we've lived through for the last month and a half, and that it could happen, it could happen tonight, it could happen anywhere. And just feeling that no one is coming to help us. I mean, Lonnie's story is is tragic, and I encourage folks. Um, that video is on Status Quo. It's a fairly long interview. We we talked through literally her entire, you know, the three to four days uh, from the derailment up until you know, uh, finally being able to kind of get into some sort of routine, whether it be, a, I mean, it's a terrible routine, unfortunately, that a lot of these folks are having to live through right now. Um, but it's, it's worth listening to. It's probably a half an hour long or so. Um, but that, that interview is really, um, powerful and, and, uh, a Pennsylvania representative, um, said it best. And I forget which one specifically said it at a hearing that I was at on my second trip to East Palestine, because a lot of folks forget that this derailment happened just a couple hundred feet from the Pennsylvania border. Uh, so residents of Pennsylvania are very much affected by this as well, and they are not getting nearly, I mean, Ohio is not getting enough help, but Pennsylvania has been fully ignored in a lot of this. Um, but, but a Pennsylvania representative said it best and, and kind of talks a little bit about what Lonnie is saying there is that derailment is just part of the business model for these railroads at this point. Um, when you have upwards of 1,700 derailments a year, I mean, how, how can we continue to let this happen, as Lonnie just said right there? Yeah, it's not a glitch, right? It's a feature. It's not a mm-hmm. bug. It's a feature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of their of their cost cutting. Wow. Um, one last question for me, which actually is from Brad. Mm-hmm. Does the Ohio governor not declaring an emergency have anything to do with currently pending deal to sell Cincinnati Southern Railway to Norfolk Southern for one point six two billion dollars? Uh, I am not sure on the specifics of that. Um, something I can definitely look into. I will say, though, that, you know, while I think the federal government needs to be stepping in and spending some real money to make it right for a lot of these residents who a lot of them want to move, you know, they they are not comfortable going back to their homes. Months later, their homes still smell. Their homes still are, in many cases, causing them to get sick. Um, While the federal government has the resources to do that, Norfolk Southern has plenty of money to be able to do that uh, to make it right for these folks. So, I don't frankly care who does it. Um, I'd like to see Norfolk Southern pay for it in the end, but these people deserve a heck of a lot more justice than they're getting right now. Um, sure, it's great to see lawsuits starting to happen. The state of Ohio is doing Norfolk Southern, and the Justice Department now is as well. Um, that's great and all. Those lawsuits are not going to do anything for those people today, though. Um, something needs to be done for them today. So I, I just want to say that this is what happens when profits dictate our lives in that uh, we haven't really talked about this, but how the railroads should be nationalized and that our for-profit healthcare system should be free from profits. Um, I think that's a good way to tie up what's happening in um, in East Palestine as well as in our broken healthcare system. Yeah, it is the common thread. It is. Well, thank you so much. Any final words from anyone? This is an amazing, uh, has been an amazing discussion. Um, I, I would like to say that if people are interested in our open letter, they can go to our website, which is nationalsinglepayer.org. Um, they can click on the first link, which will show them uh, they can read the open letter. And then there are some action items that people can take because we really would love to have people write to their Congress uh, person, the members of Congress, and um, let them know about the how to, well, first of all, to to 
co-sponsor Pramila Jaipal's uh, 2023 Medicare for All Act, which we hope is going to be introduced soon, um, and then uh, to improve and strengthen that bill before it gets introduced. Because we have a train wreck of a healthcare system. (laughs) (laughs) And it's far beyond the time to do it. No incremental stuff. Move right forward, straight ahead to a national single payer system that will cover everybody and begin to heal the nation. Yeah, that's a, a great way to, to tie it up, Kay. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, I'd encourage and folks don't to don't go anywhere. It. One second. Don't go anywhere because yeah. we're going to have Aaron Good on talking about who should have been indicted before Trump. But sorry, Lewis, Lewis, oh, back yeah. to you. You're good. I was going to after you watch that, uh, you should uh, you should definitely I'd encourage folks to check out Status Coup on YouTube if you haven't already. Um, we've posted dozens of interviews with residents that I've done over two weeks of reporting on the ground in East Palestine. I'm looking to get back to East Palestine again soon as well to continue covering this story. Um, so I'd encourage folks to check that out. Um, and then you can also check out uh, myself on Twitter as well at LewisD217. Um, I'm posting updates about East Palestine as well as other things there as well. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.